The church is made up of people like you and me and all of them. The church offers a ton of benefits. When we love each other, we each feel like a part of the family. When we encourage each other, we each gain confidence. When we accept each other, we feel like we belong. When we care for each other, we each feel supported. We're all a vital piece in making the church what it was meant to be. When these are lived out well, the church is a community with amazing perks. Well, hey everybody, my name is Aaron Hickson. I'm the Henrietta Campus Pastor, and we're stoked that you are joining us. However you're joining us today, thanks for checking us out. Uh, we are in the final week of Church Perks, talking all about how church can and should have benefits. We both provide the benefits and receive the benefits of being part of a community like this. Uh, but when you think of a group of people who stand up for each other, who do you think of? Maybe you think of, you know, like, uh, like a, a soldier's unit, right? Like no soldier left behind or a sports team. Or maybe you think about like a family. It's like, hey, don't you be talking about my mama or, you know, that kind of thing. Like we think of tight-knit groups like that. At least those are some of the ones that I think of. But let me ask, if you were to think of a tight-knit group, do you ever think of a church? Do you ever think of church? And I think maybe, you know, if you're thinking about a group that's totally unified, that stands up for each other, you might say yes, because I think sometimes there are cases where that's true. But what if we're talking about, let's say, like all of the Christians in Rochester, including that church with the weird theology, or that church that gets all kind of weird about social issues or whatever, that unity thing is not so good anymore, right? Right, like we might be more likely to fight with that church than fight for that church. But let me ask you this. Is that how it's supposed to be? Is that how God intended his church to operate? Quick tip, the answer is no. <laughs> That's not how we're supposed to operate. In fact, today we're going to look at a passage that says that in the church there should be no division. No division. And frankly, that doesn't even sound like Northridge right now. I mean, forget all the Christians in Rochester. We don't even have this together in our own house about almost any of the big issues today. I mean, at least according to my Facebook feed. But inside this passage, I think we will find the one thing that I believe is the tool for developing unity. In fact, I think it is the hinge that unity turns on. And I believe that the future of this church will depend on our ability to effectively utilize this one tool. So let's find out together what it is and how we can use it. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's where we're going to be spending our time today. And uh, 1 Corinthians, it's a letter written in the first century by a guy whose name was Paul. He was the leader of the church at that time, and he would go around to different places around the Mediterranean and um, he would start a church, and then he would check on that church by writing them letters. And 1 Corinthians is actually one of those letters. He's writing, it says in 1 Corinthians 1-2, to the church of God in Corinth. And there's a concept here that I want to explain that's really important before we ever get to 1 Corinthians 12. Notice, notice what he says. He is not writing to their main offices. Okay, he's not writing to their lead pastor. He's writing to dozens of house churches led by different volunteer pastors. And this letter was supposed to be shared between all of them and was supposed to be relevant for all of them. 
And remember, okay, we're talking about unity. And that's what we're focusing on, unity in the church. And so it's important that you realize when Paul is picturing the church, he isn't picturing like one massive building. He's not picturing one big organization like Northridge. He's talking about all of the Christians in that city. His message about church and its unity applies to all of the levels of church. I can think of three levels of church that this would apply to. First of all, it applies to a single local church. That would be in our context like North, Northridge or Glory House or Browncroft, each of those as individual units. And for Paul, this would have been those house churches. But it also applies to all the Christians in the city. So like all the Christians in Rochester or all of those individual churches I mentioned and more, all combined. But then there's also the last layer, that's the universal church. And that's all the Christians everywhere in the world. So Paul, when he's speaking about unity, he's talking about all of these levels of church. And suddenly, this gets real interesting, right? Because think about how much harder it is to have unity when you're talking about something that is that big. I mean, the more people you include in a circle, the harder it is to get along, right? And that's really important. It's going to be super important to keep in mind as we get to our passage for today. Because in our actual passage we're going over, Paul is talking to the Christians about how they should be unified. And in order to make his point about unity in all of the layers of church, he uses a metaphor. And the metaphor he uses throughout this section is that the church is a body. Okay, the church is a body. As in like a human body, <laughs> which is kind of a nice metaphor. We can all relate to it because we all have one of these. And so we kind of get how they work. And he uses this to describe how the church should function. In fact, I think there are three principles we can just draw quickly from this metaphor in 1 Corinthians 12 that I just want to briefly describe. And the first one is this, that unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. He focuses on this in verse 12 through 14. In fact, verse 12 says this. It says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. Okay, so your eyes in the body, they're not the same as your hands, right? Or your toes. These are all different things, but they all come together to make one cohesive whole. So the church, if it's going to be like the body, it's not going to be uniform. We shouldn't all be the same. But it's that diversity that we have. It should not lead us to disunity. We're one unit, right? We're made up of different, unique parts. And that's his whole first point, is just that unity should, is not the same as uniformity. But then there's a second point, and that is that everyone is important. Everyone is important. He focused this in verse 15 through 17. In this section of verses, he's trying to prevent any part of the body from feeling like they're worthless. He doesn't want anyone being like, well, I'm not that cool, so I don't really have anything to offer. Paul's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. That's not true. Just because you're the pancreas doesn't, then you're not the eye. And I think we can all agree the pancreas is not as cool as the eye. I actually don't know what the pancreas does, but it doesn't seem as cool as the eye. But regardless, just because you're the pancreas doesn't mean you get to quit doing your job. You're important. It, he even says it in verse 15. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it wouldn't, for that reason, stop being part of the body. He's like, no, you matter. Everyone is important in the body. But then there's a whole other danger that we need to avoid, and that's the next point that he makes. And that is that no one is that important. <laughs> no one is that important. It's kind of the opposite problem, where somebody starts to think they're kind of hot stuff, right? 
And he's like, we can't have that either. So he says in verse 21, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. He's like, yeah, you do. Don't go there. Don't get cocky. Nobody is that important. In order to have the body function properly, you have to keep the balance. You can't let anyone believe they don't matter, but you can't let anyone think that they matter the most. And so then right in the middle of this section, verse 18 through 20, I think he kind of presents his thesis here. He says, but in fact, God has placed parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And so there we have it. That's his point. Many parts, one body. A beautifully interconnected system designed to work better together. But what's the goal? (laughs) What, What does this amazing system produce? We see that in verse 24 where he gets down to it. He says, but God has put the body together so that there should be No division in the body. Do you see that? Okay, God put the body together, a diverse and complicated system of interdependent moving parts. He made the body so that way for the express purpose of no division. The purpose behind God's amazing design for the church was so that it could produce unity. But doesn't that sound a little naive? Right, like it kind of sounds a little like utopia. He's a little bit dreaming here, right? I mean, what does no division even mean? Well, I honestly think we sometimes make this harder than it is. Because Paul actually gives us a picture of what it is, but we've made it into something that it isn't. When we hear no division, we assume that everyone's like holding hands and singing kumbaya. But what does Paul actually say in verse 25? So that there should be no division in the body, but that... What should happen, not any division, what should happen is that the parts should have equal concern for each other. So according to Paul, no division isn't perfect peace, it's equal concern for one another. Well, equal concern, what does that mean? Well, the word concern is actually one that Drew talked about a couple months ago, and it's sometimes translated throughout the New Testament as worry. In other words, we should be worried about or like invested in each other. So equal concern means that there should be this sense of equitable, of mutual commitment to each other and to the other members of the body of Christ. But what's a practical example of this, right? Paul knows we'll need one. He gives us one in the next verse, verse 26. He says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. So according to Paul, no division in the body looks like equal concern within the body. And equal concern is pretty straightforward as well. What it means is, is there pain in one part of the body? Well, then the whole body feels it. Is there rejoicing and joy in one part of the body? That joy is felt everywhere. You could say it basically this way. When there is no division, your hurts are heard and your joy is shared. When there is no division, your hurts are heard and your joy is shared. And right, think about that for a second. You've had that in your body, right? Have you ever uh, woken up, you know, wrong side of the bed or whatever, and you got like a crick in your neck and it like tenses up? I'm almost 30, so I'm starting to get that a lot. <laughs> well, well, when you get that pain in your neck, man, it like can stop you in your tracks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Why in the world would neck pain make it hard to walk, right? That doesn't make, why would neck pain make it hard to think, 
But that's how it works. Pain in one part of the body spreads and is felt everywhere. And to Paul, that is the picture of unity. Your hurts are heard and your joy is shared. And just pause there for a second, okay? Can you imagine a community like this? Can you imagine all the perks of being in a community like this? A group of people that are wildly diverse with different views on all kinds of stuff, but who hear each other's pain so well that it's as if the whole body is racked with pain when one person feels it. A group that is so present with the joys in life that there's no jealousy. It's just genuine celebration for each person's victory. Can you imagine what that would be like? Family, that's what it's supposed to be like. That's one of the benefits of church. That's one of the perks. Your hurts should be heard. Your joy should be shared. I mean, it's so isolating to have a deep pain that you would like to share, but every person you talk to just gives you a trite answer. They don't understand the depth of your pain. Or on the flip side, maybe you accomplish something that you're really stoked about, and you can't find anyone that'll get excited with you. Like the kid who finally steps back and knocks down the big, like, deep three in his driveway, knocks it down and looks over, and dad is on his phone and missed it. Right? Man, that sinking feeling. Pain was meant to be heard. Joy was meant to be shared. And when we get this wrong as a church, what we're doing is creating division. We're destroying our chances of ever being the body of Christ as God intended. And I'm convinced that what Paul is saying is that the key to having no division at every layer of church is equal concern. Hurts are heard and joy is shared. In essence, uh, I think you could summarize this whole idea in one word. The word is empathy. Empathy. That's it. Actually hearing and believing the pain of others and entering into their joy and celebration. Just step into their experience. What I believe Paul is saying is simply this. Empathy is the bridge to unity. Empathy is the bridge to unity. If I have any hope, if we have any hope of being the church that I believe that God is calling us to be, we must be a community that is characterized by empathy. Because Paul knew that if the people of God were committed to hearing the pain and feeling the joy of their brothers and sisters, there would be unity. That's not to say there would never be conflict. Come on, in our bodies there's conflict all the time. My lungs never agree with my, body, my brain's desire to run a mile. It doesn't happen. But there is unity in the body because the pain and the messages that are sent from one part of the body to the other part are heard, they're received, and they are understood. There is empathy within the body, thus there is unity. So how do we do this? What's the pathway to empathy that could lead us ultimately to unity? Let me give you three steps that will lead us to shared pain and ultimately to mutual joy. First of all, I think we need to hear. First, we need to hear. Notice I said hear, meaning you are being silent and you are fully comprehending the words being spoken. You can't empathize with things that you haven't found out about yet. So if we're going to be a community of empathy and unity, we need to be quick to listen and slow 
to speak. I am terrible at this. But I think it actually goes beyond that because sometimes it seems that what we need to do in this phase is also to hear from different people than you're normally used to hearing from. But we'll get to that later. The first step to empathy is to hear. And second, you need to imagine yourself saying what you've heard. Imagine yourself saying what you've heard. And look, I know, this might sound kind of silly, <laughs> but I promise you, it is effective. When you're hearing a word of pain from a brother or sister in Christ, just take a moment and imagine that you are the one experiencing the exact pain that they are describing. And then just sit there quietly for a minute and let yourself experience the emotion, the helplessness, the desperation that they are describing. Just sit in it. For a minute. For the majority of Christians, and I would say stereotypically men, we are awful at this. We don't hear people at all, much less then enter into their experience. But Paul was saying we should be suffering with those who suffer. And in order for that to happen, we're going to have to get used to forcing ourselves to consider and to feel the emotions of others. And man, during COVID, I've been wrestling with this personally. Again, I'm not good at it. I was starting to see a bunch of posts really early on about how, like, man, we should really be supportive of graduates during this season. You know, they haven't had their ceremonies and that kind of stuff. And at first, I kind of skimmed over all that. I'm like, come on, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, all right? Nobody cares about your graduation. I'm obviously very good at empathy. Like I said, I'm terrible. But then I thought about it some more. I kept seeing these things, and I thought, what if this were my graduation ceremony? Or maybe this is more helpful for me. What if it were my kid's graduation ceremony what would I be feeling and suddenly I could see how an event that you've spent your life or you've prepared your children for for a long time seeming flat and dull would be a huge disappointment it would seem really anticlimactic and what I began to experience was empathy and that should lead us to the third the final step on the pathway here which is that we need to act accordingly once you've done the work of hearing and you've had the discipline to put yourself in their shoes, the final step is to allow that knowledge to drive you to some kind of action. Oftentimes, we get so overwhelmed at this step because <clears throat> we just don't know what to do that could possibly help. But once again, I think we can overcomplicate this too. And, and I don't want to be, you know, again, overly simplistic or something because I know there can be nuance to this. But if you've truly done the work of entering into their experience, this isn't always true. But what I would say you could almost always do is just ask yourself, what would I be hoping someone would do if I were in their situation? You know, it, look, you don't have to think about it that hard. If you had just thrown the winning touchdown pass, you'd be hoping someone would cheer with you, right? If you're calling a buddy because you've got a flat tire, you're hoping they're going to come help you, right? You would just love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't have to be complicated. There are times, however, I think, where the best thing we can do with certain kinds of pain is do nothing. Just to mourn with people. Take time to sit in the lament and the difficulty of their pain in silence. And while it might not feel like you're helping, it might be the most healing thing you could do. Church is supposed to be a family where your hurts are heard and your joy is shared. In empathy, there is no division. 
even if we are not on the same page about any of the hot button issues, about masks or no, or the solution to systemic racism, or the existence of systemic racism, or how to interpret the book of Revelation in light of recent events, okay? Doesn't matter. If we are living in empathy, we have a bridge to unity. So you might be wondering, how do I need to apply it this week? And I think that's a fair question. Because we've already talked about the fact that Paul was applying this to all of the levels of the church across their city. Most of the time our application is just about our local church, and I get that. But I want to think more broadly. Who should we be focusing on? And I think first of all, we should be focusing on Northridge Church as the first layer of this. So what does walking the pathway to empathy look like for your current friends and family inside Northridge Church? Maybe does it look like helping that person in your community group, even if it's the 10th time they've asked you for help? How about going out of your way to help celebrate a milestone, a milestone that COVID has made seem like it's flat or not important? Would you be secretly hoping that someone would do that for you in this moment? Then do it for them. That's what empathy will empower you to do. So that's Northridge, but what about other Christians in Rochester citywide? How does this work with the church in Rochester? Well, I think one way that it could look is choosing to walk the pathway to empathy with some Christians that perhaps you've never heard from before. We are in a very significant cultural moment when it comes to racism in America. And so I want to speak very briefly to my brothers and sisters in the majority culture. I think it's worth asking this question. Have you heard from your fellow Christians in our area who are people of color? Look, I know there's a lot of voices out there today. I really do. I know it's hard to cut through the noise and figure out which worldview is being represented and are they a critical race theorist and does this represent cultural Marxism and all kinds of things. I know there's a lot of voices. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about brothers and sisters in Christ who right now are expressing their pain out loud. I'm asking, have we heard them? Have we taken time to walk the pathway to empathy, to enter into their life experiences, to wonder what it would be like to be them? Paul seemed to believe that if one part of the body of Christ was hurting, the whole body would hurt with them. I'm proposing that there are some people who are hurting that we haven't heard. We're supposed to hurt with them, not question their experiences or provide alternative facts. Believe them and hurt with them. If you're anything like me, my first response to complicated struggles is usually to get out of earshot as fast as I can. Because if I don't understand those struggles or I haven't experienced those struggles, the sooner I can get away from thinking about them, the better. But does that sound like empathy to you? I mean, does that sound like no division in the body of Christ? We can be confident that there were racial tensions inside of the church at Corinth that Paul was writing to. Confident. He seemed to believe that the power of the gospel could overcome those struggles. But I believe that we as a church have empathy work to do first and foremost. Look, I am not suggesting any solutions here. Honestly, I'm not. I'm really not. I recognize this is a very complicated topic. I'm only suggesting that we take seriously what Paul said, which was that when one part suffers, every part suffers with it. Are we suffering with brothers and sisters who don't look like us? So that's what it might look like citywide. But then what about globally? 
we can't forget that we also have brothers and sisters around the world who are our actual family that are experiencing deep persecution. They are daily facing death. And then that can seem so far removed from our reality that honestly it's hard to even picture. But let's walk the pathway to empathy to hear their pain. Hear their stories of struggle. What if it's your children that was being taken by the government? What if it was your parents who were being killed and imprisoned for their faith? If that were you, you in that situation, what would you be hoping a fellow believer in Christ would be doing all the way around the world? How would you be hoping they would act? Here's how I think we have to close this. I'm not trying to give anyone a specific set of actions that will solve any problems for any Christians anywhere in the world. I'm really not. But let me be clear about what I believe is the responsibility of every Christian as a result of what Paul has said. We must find a way to hear the pain and the joy of people who are part of the body of Christ. And I would add, from my opinion, ideally someone that you've never heard from before. Walk into their experiences of joy and pain and see where that empathy takes you. Honestly, given how broadly this applies across the three levels of church, I'm not even going to tell you what to do as a result because it's just so varied in how this could look in your life. I'll just say this, that I have never personally become genuinely empathetic and remained comfortable doing nothing for those whose stories of pain I finally truly understood. Once you understand the experience of others, I think, church, that we are well on the way to acting on the behalf of the rest of the body. If we're ever going to realize the vision that God had for a church with no division, it must begin by building bridges of empathy. And so I ask you, will you join me? Let's pray. God, this is tough. In fact, I would say it's impossible. But the unity that we have is from your son. It was purchased on the cross. It's a completed act, one that we need to walk into, one that you've already given us, one that you bought with your blood and that you secured through your resurrection. Please give us the strength to not fully agree. You made us different to sharpen each other, but to walk in empathy with our brothers and sisters, knowing that in that, there is unity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for taking you know, part of your week to join us. We are so thrilled that we get an opportunity, honestly, to serve along with you and in your life. Thank you for checking this out. And I just want to say that next week represents a big milestone for all of us. And for those of you who are ready, who are willing, who are healthy, ready to social distance, ready to wear those masks, and want to begin to regather again in person, it's going to be a great opportunity for us to take advantage of the freedoms that we have in compliance with all the regulations that we have in order to see the body gathered again in person. We genuinely do believe that that's the ideal way that God has designed his church to operate. We are incredibly flexible. We're incredibly resilient. God is building his church and he will do it however he wants. But as we have opportunities to be the church gathered together in person, we'd like to work toward those opportunities as we have chances. So we look forward to hoping to have as many of you as can join us on August the 9th in person at our Rochester and Webster campuses. If you have any questions, we would love to connect to you. Please reach out so that we can know how we can best serve you. Thanks. Have a great week.